0: Welcome to Life Tones. Real life information to help you navigate and level the playing field. I'm your host, Tony Felder, but you can call me Tones. Do you ever recognize those subtle heartbreaks that creep into your life out of nowhere? Maybe you've never heard this term before, subtle heartbreaks. It's not something you can Google. Well, you definitely can but i can't promise you'll find any good results we've all had our fair share of big life-altering heartbreaks like when the person we really like doesn't say yes to a date or when we didn't land that dream job you get that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach your heart palpitates maybe your sweater and your palms or pits start to get sticky and above all you discover that the world is that much more unfair These overt heartbreaks can be very serious and can fundamentally change the way you live your life day to day. And in some cases can result in a downward spiral that if not curtailed can lead to some real personal dismay. This is especially poignant when you lose a loved one to the finality of death or when a partner destroys a relationship with infidelity. This is by no means a joking matter. And if you are experiencing dark thoughts or you are feeling yourself beginning to slip please reach out to me or a professional to talk to. Mental health and brain health are very serious matters and should not be ignored. Now, a subtle heartbreak is by no means on the same level as an overt heartbreak. Subtle heartbreaks are just that. They're subtle and beneath the surface. It's those little things that you become aware of that you yourself aren't the reason for. You're usually not directly impacted, and what's worse, you can't do much of anything about it. The reason for these are usually bigger and much more universal than when you had your dreams crushed. Like when you became aware that Pluto was no longer a planet or that a hurricane decimated an island country. It's that, "oh, damn, that sucks, event that in a subtle way makes you feel some type of way. You've experienced a bit of raw empathy and you can feel for the people affected. A subtle heartbreak happens when you yourself aren't being hurt by something or someone necessarily, but many, many people are being impacted. I like to use the term subtle heartbreaks because sometimes they're so fleeting, they can go largely unnoticed in today's fast paced, always on world. There isn't much glamour in this term. You may refer to it as something else, but it's the focus of today's topic. If you decided to skip the premiere episode and start here instead, and this is your first time listening, then you should know that Life Tones is all about teaching, or better yet, exposing you through storytelling to the information you need in life. In my short time on this earth, I've noticed that valuable information is hoarded and preserved for those who can afford to access it, with money not being the only purchasing power. This access to what I call tonal information is by and large restricted for the vast majority. Full disclosure, I don't want nor do I intend this to be a conversation about a problem. If you came here to hear another person's opinion on what needs to change, this is not the place. I have the utmost respect for the individuals who are thinking of new ways to help talk about the problems they think are important But I don't wanna waste your time with a half hour or so of me just blabbling along with an end goal of reiterating the issues. Instead, I'm here to attempt to give you the recipe to the breadcrumbs we have to pick up as we find our way in life. Now, we call it tonal information. A little background on how my mind works and why I think the way I do. As I've mentioned before, I've always maintained a special interest in information. Specifically, I've always found verbal communication to be especially interesting. I first became aware of this fascination when I was young, maybe five or six, after I was scolded by one of my elders. It was a normal summer day. Me and my cousin, by marriage, were hanging out on the porch of my grandmother-in-law's house on the south side of Hattiesburg, a small town in southern Mississippi. It was hot, the sun was unbearable, and we didn't have AC, so the taste of cold, oversweetened Kool-Aid or iced tea and a mid-afternoon breeze kept us close to the house and in the shade of the porch. I don't remember what I was doing at the time, probably something along the lines of playing with a ball or a toy, but I do remember my auntie-in-law, Tanya, and my grandma-in-law, her mother, Dana, having a pretty heated discussion. This conversation, in and of itself, wasn't too important to me, but something happened to me as a result of my interaction with the conversation that I'll never forget and that ultimately turned on a switch in my brain. The porch we were on was a half wraparound porch that extended from the front door to a side entrance about halfway to the back of the house. I remember this house being a massive five bedroom, two bath home with. 12-foot ceilings and marble fireplaces and hardwood floors throughout. The living room was so big you could fit four couches on the three walls and still have a sizable area to play in. It was situated on a corner lot across the street from a warehouse of some sort and it was kitty corner to a beautiful two-story white and yellow victorian with lush trees and honeysuckles that lined their front walkway. And though I don't really remember what the outside of my grandma's house looked like I do remember it was painted with white and black trim. We didn't have much of any grass in the front or side yard, both of which were framed by two ditches that never really had water in them. There I was, on the porch floor, around the corner, more on the side of the house, with the grown ups sitting in rocking chairs at the front of the house, just to the left of the screen door. As soon as I became aware of how tense the conversation was, I got up, walked around to see what was going on between Auntie Tanya and Grandma Day, like any normal curious kid would. As I rounded the corner, no one paid attention to me at first. I remember recognizing the excitement in the conversation, but didn't quite understand what was going on. I had questions, concerns. Was Auntie okay? Why did she seem so mad? Grandma is nodding her head up and down, enthusiastically while exhaling cigarette smoke. Does she agree with what's going on? Should I do that when I'm talking to people who are upset? Then, out of nowhere, Tanya looks at me and says in her normal stern parental voice with a little bit of sauce on top, obvious residue from the discussion she just put on hold, you better get your ass out my mouth, boy. To which I reply, but auntie, but nothing. Don't back talk me, boy. You better get your high yellow ass from around here before I slap the taste out your mouth and stay out of grown folks' business. Now as a child, this is a pretty obvious and normal case of verbal discipline that luckily didn't result in a whooping or what I would later learn is called spanking. (laughs) I can still conjure the haunting feeling that happens when I have to go fetch my own switch, but those are tales for another story. Now for my listeners who may have never heard a few of the key phrases Tanya said to me, let's spend just a little bit of time breaking them down. Auntie Tanya says three things that hold quite a bit of meaning than it may seem on first listen. The first being, get your ass out my mouth. Now this phrase, get out of my mouth is an older phrase that contains a few items within it for starters on its face. The idea is that it's rude to stare at people's mouths when they speak. Instead, you look them in the eyes. If you've never experienced Southern hospitality, a lot of it stems from the strict nature of respect you give to your elders, that I would argue is rooted in a more diabolical ideology, but it is those Southern roots while I still can't shake my auto response of yes ma'am or yes sir, whenever I interact with someone in the service industry or who has authority over me. Now it's very likely that I was staring Tanya directly in the mouth. I tended to do that because I was born with a prominent diastema between my top front two teeth and knew my family would never be able to afford to fix it. So I became obsessed with my teeth at a young age to the point where I tried to make braces out of staples. That didn't work. So I instead envied everyone with straight gapless teeth. Now my gap is a part of me for life. I've accepted that even though the self-consciousness will probably never leave me, honestly. But beneath the surface, training of proper manners, the phrase is also a very indirect way to telling people or telling someone off for meddling in your personal business. Now, Tanya at this point was doing most of the talking and probably was revealing something very personal to her mother and felt that I, as a child had no business hearing it or responding to it with my own opinions. Thus, I needed to get out of her mouth. Tanya also calls me a high yellow boy, a phrase meant to describe Black Americans who have a lighter skin tone and yellowish undertones. If you do not spend time within the Black community enough, you might not recognize that this is pejorative in nature due to colorism that happens between Blacks. It's a very unfortunate truth that even though being Black and Black culture are relatively all-inclusive, on a micro-societal level, your shade of Black can be a determinant factor where from inside looking out, you can see very clearly how people are more comfortable with black Americans who have a lighter complexion than that of black Americans with a darker complexion. This disparity can come out between members of the black community, and though no physical harm comes from it, a lot of emotional stress can happen on both sides of the fence. The most recent sort of public show of this was black Twitter's reaction to a Netflix show called Black As Fuck where darker complexion Americans felt it their obligation to point out how light-skinned the cast was. Black culture has largely taken these colorism terms back as they were initially introduced to create internal conflict, and they really tried to turn them into positives. For instance, if you've ever heard of a woman being referred to as a yellow bone or a red bone. These would be a relatively positive phrase, and you can see the attempts at change, even though it is through the sexualized and objectification of women, which I do not condone. It is a step in the wrong direction to create a right, which is why I believe the use of the phrases are dwindling in black culture. But this phrase has an even deeper pejorative meaning for me personally. When you take into account that I'm a man who self-identifies as black, whose father is black, but whose mother is white. In my experience, the deeper in the South you are, the more likely you are to run into black Americans who dislike when their men and women date and procreate outside of their skin tone. So in calling me high yellow boy, Tanya is also conveying her opinion that I am somewhat of an abomination. I would later hear this same ideology from my mother's mother years later. And lastly, the most important phrase Tanya says is that I need to stay out of grown folks business, which out of the three key phrases is the most straightforward in that it's very clear. I'm young, she's grown, she's right, I'm wrong, and there's nothing I can do about it. Shout out to Matilda. It's a very popular idea when raising children that there are certain things they should not be exposed to until they are old enough. This is similar to when a parent might say to their child, sweetie, the grown-ups are talking, or I'll tell you when you're older, Years later, when looking back on this interaction, I realized that this incident really catalyzed my interest in how we communicate information. Though it's a very difficult mental exercise, I've always advocated for people to walk backwards in their mind to when they first became aware or interested in something. I think you'll be surprised when the mental journey becomes mental clickbait that eventually unlocks a new meaning or understanding of yourself and the world you interact with. And if you have never done this before, try it out. See how many of today's habits come from your youth. For instance, I'll walk you through the mental map. I'll ask you a couple questions to help get your mind started. And once you pick up the breadcrumbs a few times, eventually your mind will start to piece the puzzle together in the background. Now, where are you right now? You don't need to answer out loud. Just become aware of your current location and your surroundings. You are listening to a podcast or you're reading the transcript. What else are you doing? When was the last time you did this exact thing in the same location? Imagine yourself, but in the third person, what can you see yourself doing? Try to walk away from this location and into the last time you were listening to a podcast, doing whatever you were doing. Keep doing this until the moment before you decide to do this for the first time. What prompted it? Why? But why? Hmm. Now, walk it back to your present self to this moment you're in right now. For this mental exercise, which I tend to do while walking and talking to myself, it would take much longer of a time than we just took. Depending on how you organize your thoughts, it could happen relatively quickly or it could take dozens of minutes, a few breaks and a few more cycles. But if you take the time to really think and unlock that inner child in you who always asked why, why, but why? you can start to unlock hidden patterns in your own life. You might find the catalyst for a certain behavior to reverberate from an overt heartbreak, or maybe even a subtle one. Is there something stressful that happens that forces you to then react? Now, if you're one of those who can look at anything they do in life and say, Psh, I know exactly why I do this, I urge you to ask your closest friends or family members what they think. Their answer might offend you or surprise you. So, how does Baby Tony react to his auntie scolding him? Any normal kid would shrug it off and go play. But I collected the information, I stored it away to think about it later, and used my direction of travel as an excuse to go into the house and get something sweet from the kitchen. As in my childhood mind, it made it seem like that was always my intent, but. Also, if Auntie Tanya was really that upset, she would notice me slip by with a few things I wasn't supposed to have before supper. But on a deeper level, it was at that moment when I started to think deeply about the idea of guarded information. At one point in time, I used to think age was the currency. What do you mean, stay out of grown folks' business? I can't wait till I'm grown, then I'll be able to know everything. And as you become older, you realize age doesn't matter and tenure is definitely a currency this one interaction combined with a few that were very similar is the start of a string that has woven itself into why i became a musician and later a budding linguist as an undergrad i loved music because it allows you to convey meaning through sound without words have you ever heard of a song that made you sad or mad I mean, we've all heard a song that sounded happy and just got us hype, right? And I found that neatly packed information of music to be so intriguing. Later in life, linguistics became my interest because it naturally builds atop the musical foundation to where I am today, interested in people, the creators, absorbers, and oftentimes destroyers of information and thus I think a lot about valuable information and actually refer to it as tonal information because of the meaning trapped within the word tonal, which means the expressing of semantic differences by varying the intonation given to words or syllables of a similar sound. In a sense, you really have to watch your tone depending on when you speak or who you're speaking to. What does all this have to do with subtle heartbreaks? Well. If you've not experienced a few of them already, we've got some work to do. In the meantime, let's take a pause to reflect so we don't become tone deaf. And I'll take you through one specific subtle heartbreak whose lessons you can use to get whatever you want. I'm in the middle. A couple years back, I decided that it was time for me to go back to school and get my master's degree, and to this day, I still think it has been one of the most important decisions I've ever made, not only from a socioeconomic perspective, but on a personal and professional level as well. I don't necessarily believe getting a graduate degree is for everyone, heck, going to college at all is definitely not for everyone, but I do believe for a vast majority of individuals Is the only real way to gain access to more tonal information. At the time of this decision and really throughout a majority of the process, I didn't recognize or rather I wasn't yet able to synthesize that there was some very minor details that separated myself from other people that I had went to school with in the past. In fact, these minor details existed not just in the academic world, but in my past work experiences too. It was this sort of ongoing quixotic simulacrum of success wrapped up in an unrealized advantage that had positioned me in such a way to easily excel in this environment and beyond. With the aid of a background in performance and a deep understanding of language. So it's the summer of 2018 and I just quit my job with the blessing and support of my wife so that I could go back to school full time. And to be honest, this was a relatively exciting time for me. I tend to enjoy academia and the structure of it on the student side. The rules are clear, and it seems to be the only time in life where everything and everyone around you are working together for everyone's future. Of course, this tends to depend on the culture of the institution you go to, as I can speak from secondhand knowledge and knowing many people pursuing or who have obtained their law degree, it's not always the case that you get that communal feel. Either way, it is also a really convenient bubble that lacks the VUCA, or volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity they are attempting to expose you to and which does exist in a very real form outside of academia. For listeners who have not yet started college for the first time, or if you've not yet gone back for the second or third degree, Every academic program gets kicked off with onboarding and eventually an orientation, which for many people in the program, it's your first exposure to all of your peers. This is a crucial time to make good first impressions and figure out who best to align yourself with while you're in the program. Now, if you're interested and stick around, stay tuned for when I'll dedicate an entire episode or more to the idea of networking and give you the tonal information behind why your network is your net worth. Now, orientation. So when you go into any academic program, you're always going to go through an orientation session very similar to your undergrad or when you got a new job. It's nearly two weeks long, and the purpose of this time together is really to take you through a lot of different things and in essence, give you a high-level 30,000-foot look at what the next two years will look like academically and then what the next 25 to 30 professional years will look like with this sort of mantra that it's never about your next job, it's about your last job and the mark you leave before retirement. What I didn't expect when I went back to college was that a lot of people are gonna treat it like it's their first time in college. The reason for this is actually twofold. If you enter into a full-time in-person program, it is very likely that it is the last time you get to experience college life. You also generally have more money and disposable income than an undergrad, which is a bonus when you don't have to plan your bar night around drink specials. But it's also important because networking, like I've mentioned before, is so important. And this culture of going out, hanging out, drinking, eating, and enjoying each other's company while you're learning advanced educational material simultaneously allows you to find your lifelong professional circles and pick up on the little things you can do and should do to enter or exit those circles. In theory, This should also be the one time where you get to be open to others and their worldviews, challenging them with respect and being honest about who you are as a person and what you want in life. One night near the end of orientation, it was decided among the first and second years that we would pregame at the bars and then head over to a second year's apartment to finish the night out. By we, I mean a majority of the program. It's a small program with less than 200 people when you combine the the classes, but this has actual immense upside when it comes to remembering names and being remembered by many. On this particular night, I had already began becoming friends with a few people in the program, and since I didn't live on or near campus, I volunteered to be a designated driver for the group, who in all honesty, I had really only interacted with during orientation or with a bunch of people at college bars. So I met up with some people from the program for dinner and drinks before the party and just talked about life before and after the program. This was an extremely normal moment of interaction between like-minded people who just wanted to air their grievances about the world but also share their aspirations for a better life in good company with good food and craft beer. I had sparkling water with a lemon. Now, it was time to grab checks and head out, which we did, and then we walked out into the parking lot. A few more people than we had anticipated going ended up showing up, and I offered the extra seats I had in my car. It was a short ride, so they didn't mind cramming into the back seat. It was chilly outside for a late August night in the Midwest. The air had the perfect balance of fall crispness and summer warmth. There was a football game the next day, so the town had a buzzing energy propping it up and the air smelled like fall and excitement. Everyone was in a good mood with groups of people dressed up either just starting or continuing a night of celebration. When we started walking towards my car, I clicked my key fob to remote start the car for it to heat up, but also give everyone an idea of how long of a cold walk it was going to be. Pretty men and women giggled and greeted us as we passed them in the parking lot and geriatric couples nodded and smiled when they walked by. We all hopped in my car, everyone got their seatbelt in and got situated. Now, I rarely have other people in my car, so I always forget that the music I listen to isn't for everyone. And sometimes, well, most of the time, I listen to it on the too loud side of the volume spectrum. My phone synced within seconds of the last seatbelt click and the ending minute of an Anderson Paak song came on. My friend in the passenger seat said, oh, this sounds cool, who is this? This is an artist known as Anderson Pack. My best friend sent me his Tiny Desk video and I've been hooked ever since, I responded. Oh yeah, I've heard of him. I've been meaning to listen to his stuff but haven't gotten around to it, they said. I highly recommend it, I responded, putting the car into drive and pulling out of the parking spot. As we got to the edge of the business complex, Anderson Pack faded and the next song in the rotation was by Travis Scott who had just dropped a new album a few weeks ago. Oh, you know who Travis Scott is, someone from the backseat said. I know about some Travis Scott, I said in response. Okay then, turn that shit up. And we all rapped the song like we were at a concert. By the end of the track, we arrived at the apartment complex and got out. It wasn't obvious where we were supposed to go and the building doors where I parked were all locked. After a few seconds, someone piped up, where we at? Shit, I don't know. You got Angela's number? Hit her up and uh, ask how we got in, I said. She obliged, pulled out her phone, and called Angela. Hey, Angela, it's Malia. We're standing outside your building, but the door is locked. Can you let us in? A few more words were exchanged, and she said, Okay, thank you, and hung up the phone. What's good, then? Somebody else in the group said. This bitch said the door is somewhere around the corner over there, she said, pointing down the street behind us. Shit, let's go then, it's cold as a mug, Iyer, I said, and walked briskly in direction she pointed. As we rounded the corner, Angela came into view behind a side door, up a few steps. Come on in, guys, she said. Awesome, thank you, a few of us replied. Hmm, did you hear it? When thinking about America as a whole, there's something odd about the idea of having to conform in order to ascend the socioeconomic ladder. And over the next year and a half, I watched people I began to care for be forced into a box in order to be included, not just in the conversation, but the experience and the opportunities. This story was one of the many dozens of interactions I would have throughout the program. Even more, it allowed me to mentally trace other instances in every job, school, neighborhood, community, grocery store, every area of life that I've had to navigate. What was even more interesting is I was able to recognize there was a skill level that needed to be achieved. And even though the few of us who got into the program having mastered a bit of the skill, there was also a clear separation, even among us, looking at areas of succession beyond the program. I'ma be honest with y'all. When I'm with the homies, when I'm on the car or I'm in the crib by myself, when I talk to my dogs, like my two female dogs, Penny and Layla, this is how I talk. They understand commands like, hey nigga, what you doing? Or get your ass from over there. Shit, this is the vernacular and the accent I not only normally talk in, but am most comfortable around. Real talk, when I have conversations with myself, I sound like this. When I don't understand what my wife is talking about, I ask her, what the fuck are you talking about? You motherfuckers can't see me, but I'm doing hella hand gestures right now. My facial expressions are a bit more animated and my body language has become much more fluid almost melodic did you hear it i not only have to know how to be mellifluous when i speak but i have to be exceedingly cognizant of who my audience is because if i don't properly code switch i don't get the job i don't get the opportunity i get charged more ignored or any number of things if i don't approach it as a requirement rather than an option of expression, because let's be honest, it's not a freedom of expression. I probably don't impress my in-laws enough to get their blessing to marry my wife. Those in-laws who have yet to actually meet that version, the authentic version of Tony. More on that in another episode. This is the subtle difference, mixed in with a bit of luck, that has largely separated me from the black and brown people I grew up with. Now, I'ma let you know right now, I do not think I'm better than anyone, especially anyone I grew up with in the hood. I don't think I'm a better person, nor do I think I'm smarter or a harder worker. I just think I have luckily gained more access to information. And honestly, I think I got lucky. I was put into a terrible situation growing up poor, but had such an odd eclectic exposure to so many things that continued to drive my curiosity. I'm a people watcher. I love it. And I've watched people get things they want simply by how they talk. I truly believe code switching is a skill that has to be thought about deeply, or at least stumbled upon efficiently in order to have a real impact on your life. I wish it weren't true. And a lot of people might come at me and say that this is bullshit. Just bring yourself into the conversation. Matter of fact, bring your whole self into the conversation. But when you begin to look at every profession imaginable in any industry, the black and brown cream that rose to the top has to carry itself differently, different from themselves and more like where they're trying to go. This of course does not absolve racial inequity in our country. This is actually a silently amplified representation of the racial inequity in our country. Professional athletes who eventually become superstars have to be groomed to talk to the media or be fined. The most successful music artists who consistently stay in the media spotlight have to carry themselves in a certain manner. Look at 50 Cent in 2005 versus 50 Cent in 2020, or Jay-Z. The list goes on and on when you look at who is selling the most records or making the most money, but most importantly, who's staying around the longest, not who's popping this summer, but didn't last and won't next but those who make it through and stick around, they've changed. They've figured out how to separate who they are as a performer and how to perform when they must be themselves in the spotlight. Now, you might say that, Oh, Tony, they just grew up. They're acting like adults now and you are right in some respect, but the truth of the matter is in our country, in our society, if you are black or Brown, you are seen as older than you actually are. So it is imperative that, We understand this difference at a very, very young age, or we might end up actually hurting our trajectory as we grow older. Code switching by and large is not a new idea or concept. There is a ton of research on it and plenty of podcasts that can help you understand examples of when it happens or what it is. I spent a pretty lengthy time in my linguistic studies going over the much more academic side of code switching which is probably the most obvious form of it. Like when you hear people speaking in a foreign language like Spanish and randomly, they may say something that is an English word. In a sense, this is code switching. It's interesting to peel apart the linguistics, especially when there is a native language equivalent word, but the speakers choose to use an English word anyway. So in order to become a master of code switching and make it impactful, it has to be more than just the idea of code switching. You have to recognize the nuances of it, too. In linguistics, we often talk about it as mirroring this idea that when you're communicating with someone, anyone, without you being consciously aware of it, you start to permutate your speech patterns and harmonize with your conversation counterpart. You do it so often, so subconsciously, that I posit if you become aware of it, it can become your little superpower. Human communicative assimilation happens. There's nothing we can really do to stop it, but I think there are ways we can control it to our advantage and dare I say, use it as a way to get things that we want. When it comes to employing mirroring or code switching, it's not just the vernacular and speech patterns, but your flow and pace, the prosody you create, which is essentially that rhythmic texture of your speech. It's also grammar and the tiniest of inflections or accent. If you ever ran into someone who has a Valley Girl accent, no offense to my fans in the Valley, but in the linguistics community, we term that end of sentence rising inflection as Valley Girl. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's that like way of saying a sentence that also sounds like a question and you aren't really sure if you should answer it. To master code switching, you also have to be aware of unrecognized metathesis. If you speak general American English, or what you hear on a national TV show, you probably don't recognize your own metatheses, which is when you switch a vowel or consonant sound for efficiency. Think of the word Wednesday, which used to be pronounced closer to Wednesday, the way it's spelled, or the word ask, like to ask a question. For the better part of a decade, my white friends would make it an effort to poke fun at the way I asked them a question. Now you'll need to pay attention to body language, especially with hand positions and eye contact. And don't forget about volume, the register, timbre, and pitch of your voice. And lastly, silence. Silence can be very powerful. As you start out, you'll need to talk to as many different people as you can. The only rule to really live by here is to fake it till you make it. When I recorded this episode, we were in the midst of an election year tattered by a pandemic. So I don't recommend going out and finding anyone to chat with for your own safety. But an easy way to practice this is to imitate someone. Pick your favorite rapper or singer or comedian or TV show character and try to imitate them 100%. Listen for all the things we mentioned above from prosody to silence, then dial it back about 10% or maybe 15. This is something you can do on the daily if like me, you listen to music every day. So how do you effectively code switch to get whatever you want? Well, disclaimer, I'm giving you the recipe for how to sound when you talk to someone, not what to say or how to say it. Those are the things you'll have to figure out on a case by case situation. I could absolutely put together a hypothetical conversation or bring someone on to let you listen to how quickly it happens, but I'm not sure it would be helpful. Something that would be helpful though is to take a random actor or really anyone and listen to them talk for 5 or 10 minutes. Then find an article or the book you're currently reading and try to hear the words in your head as the voice of the person you just watched. While doing this, you'll become aware of how you're actually changing in your brain to match the intonations and rhythm of your mental imitations. For instance, they might pause a few milliseconds longer than you do after a comma or a period, little things like that. My favorite voice to imitate is Morgan Freeman. And recently I've been playing around with Matthew McConaughey's Rusty Cole from True Detective mixed with Cooper from Interstellar. And I've been having fun reading things in Claire Foy's voice after binging the first two seasons of The Crown. Now it's not an exact imitation, which is why I mentioned dialing it back a bit when you imitate someone famous. And you have to understand not just power dynamics, but network structure and fluidity. What I mean by this is generally, you always want to code switch or mirror up the only time you should ever really code switch down, that is to someone who is in a less authoritative position as you, or who are clearly in a lower hierarchical status, is when you speak to children under the age of 13, which obviously this is all just advice. Do whatever you want, but I believe you should talk to kids the way they talk, but infuse good grammar and inflections, etc., so that they learn the proper way to speak from you. You should also always mirror down when you are working in customer service or in customer facing positions such as retail or fast food. Now it's very easy to step over the line of imitation and into the realm of mockery. Do not mock. But in my experience, you can always get things done better and quicker if you come down to the level of those you are servicing. This is especially important when mentoring and coaching. In terms of network structure and fluidity, if you begin to employ certain tactics of mirroring as a form of manipulation, you can get yourself into trouble if you talk to someone in a network who then becomes more senior in that network. Or when you have innocent bystanders in a network who might be watching your every move, you then have to talk to them later and reconfigure something that they've already assumed about you. This has to do with your first impression. Keep in mind, not all first impressions are face-to-face. Um, A first impression could be an email. It could be uh, walking into a room to speak to someone else. But good leaders, really good leaders, remember you. And more importantly, people in general amplify their memories of you. So if you come into a situation and you're not immediately on, even if you kill it and have an incredible conversation, it's very likely that you've already anchored yourself for future interactions. And it's very hard to pull yourself out of that. This may seem odd, but I think there's a strong bit of psychology going on here. You have to assume that people you interact with don't think deeply about every moment of interaction, especially in this always-on world. So you have to instead think of moments of impact, moments of indelibility, moments of sensory importance. This could be from how you walk, to how fast your eyes move, to the firmness of your handshake, or the obvious genuineness of your smile. People don't always notice these things in the front of their mind, but I promise you, they plant themselves in the back. Can you remember a time when you walked away from a meeting and everything went great, but everything didn't feel great? Something was off or something didn't add up. Relive those situations in the third person with the exercise from before. Nine times out of 10, there's going to be something that happened that was small enough to register in your brain as significant enough to decide whether or not you trust or like someone. If you stick around, when I dive deep into networking and especially interviewing, I will break this concept down further and will refer back to it multiple times. When it comes to code switching, you have to be so close to an imitation of a person that they actually end up mirroring you. You can think of conversation assimilation as having a spectrum to it with you on one side and your counterpart on the other, where meeting in the middle forms a bond You see this a lot in couples who are dating or married, and those who are considered to be of the closest of friends. Sometimes it even happens inside family circles, but in my opinion, this is much less of meeting in the middle and more of just growing up in the same environment. So imagine this spectrum with your face on one side and whoever you're talking to on the polar opposite. When you begin a conversation with someone who has seniority over you, the spectrum immediately starts out leaning nearly all the way to your side. This might seem counterintuitive, but the closer you are on the spectrum to yourself, the more like yourself you are being in a conversation. Your goal is to move along the spectrum to get as close to the other person without ever touching them. This is also a very good rule of thumb for personal space. But no worries if you do begin so far on your own side because sociolinguistic habits are on your side. However, if you want to gain greater control of a conversation without ever making it seem as if you are, you'll need to overtly take control of the spectrum. When you walk up to a person, take note of their posture, especially if they are standing. If they're sitting, ask if you can join them. Or if there's no room to sit, ask them to take a walk with you. If neither of these work, you can always schedule a time to talk at a later date. And in all digital world, do the same. If it's obvious that they're standing, stand. If it's obvious they're sitting, take a seat. Next, pay attention to their workspace or what's in front of them. If their desk or area is messy, feel free to add to it. If you have a mug or a folder with you, add it on top. Now, if their desk is very clean and organized, you have two options. Show your organization by taking an almost too long attempt at neatly placing your things in front of them. If you brought a folder, make an effort to bring your pen out um, of the folder or out of your pocket and place it down next to your folder, lining the top of the pen to the top or the bottom of the pen to the bottom of the folder. Option two, keep everything in your bag and place it on the floor beside you. Even if you have a cup of coffee, keep it on the floor. Just a folder in hand, keep it in your lap. It shows a sense of respect for their space that is not something someone's actively thinking about. But I promise you, they make note of it in the back of their head. While doing this, you'll need to gather a few key details. What were they doing right before they noticed you? What was their facial expression? What's the relaxation level of their shoulders and the angle of their head? Match them, almost identically. If they smile when they first talk, match it. Slow talker, match it. Are they talking throaty? Match it. Match energy, match volume, match expressive intonations as much as possible, as soon as possible, but with everything backed by your own personality. Meaning you are imitating, but not mocking. If you can do this and also remain cognizant that they are naturally adjusting to you, you will eventually land in the exact middle of the spectrum, but only for a moment because you want to continue doing this until you begin to lean to the other side of the spectrum. And you'll feel it when you reach that bit of synergy. Your counterpart will become more relaxed and that means their expressions and mannerisms will become relaxed you have to continue to match them because this is the tipping point if they were wound up or overly relaxed and then you create an area of safety that allows them to switch but yet you refuse to follow them as you lead them along the path they won't make it and the system will crash but this is where you can take overt control over a conversation even if you're talking to an a type who likes to lead the conversation that's not a problem It's up to you to discover if you need to drive the car at the wheel or steer the ship at the helm. If you do this, I promise you, you'll find your mentor, sponsor, advocate, friend, or you'll be able to get your point of views across, be heard and be remembered. Do you only meet in settings of three or more? It's best to get the leader by themselves. But if you can't do that, match the leader of the group. I've successfully used these tactics to get everything from free food to a pay raise and everything in between. Now, if you're walking to a room with the goal of winning something right away, you can expect a high rate of failure. Instead, mirror your counterpart. Why are they here? Probably for themselves. If you can convince them that you are there for them as well, you might stand a chance eventually. Now, did it click? If not, no worries. What I've tried to do is expose you to the performance aspect of code switching, but there's also the other side of it, the most crucial side, effective listening, listening with your ears and your eyes. Overtones. Code switching is by and large, a gatekeeper it can keep people out of circles and keep them away from gaining access to that valuable or tonal information. This is a subtle heartbreak leverage the gate to gain access. It is also the silent amplification of inequity in our society, where if you don't speak and sound like those in power, oftentimes they shut you out and usually not on purpose. They just trusted their gut, but you can be in control of this. Sometimes the lack of code switching can be the deciding factor behind why someone did not exceed where they otherwise should have. Because at the end of the day, we just want to work with and help out people we can see ourselves in, and usually a better version of ourselves. You can create that experience for someone. Undertones Situational awareness, especially understanding who your audience is, is such a difficult thing to just learn. Like most life skills, they take time to cultivate and practice is key. Effective listening is more than just nodding and responding to what is being said, it's also the practice of meeting someone where they are and guiding them to where you would like them to be for their sake and yours. Adaptability is a major factor, not just in code switching, but in life generally. But also adaptability has to be purposeful with the purpose of always moving forward. You adapt with the times, not ahead of them. So adapt with the person, not ahead of them. But that doesn't mean that you can be anticipatory, but you can make it obvious. If this idea struck a tone, give us feedback and start a discussion. Feel free to reach out to me personally. If you want to share a story that is like this one or any of the others you hear, I would love to hear it. I would also really enjoy the opportunity to eventually have you share your stories with others right here on lifetones you never know when your tonal information might just change someone's life because the success of me is the success of we on our next episode we dive into the idea of apathy and how powerful of a tool it can be once we strip the negativity from it it's been an honor and a privilege to be here with you i look forward to our time together thank you Life Tones is written and produced by me. Tonal soundscapes composed by me. If you enjoy Life Tones, remember to rate and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For additional content, follow us at Life Tones Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or visit us at tonesoflife.com.